From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. Welcome to another episode of Theology on Mission. This is kind of one of our summer special breakouts. We have a guest with us, Scott Kent Jones, coming to us from Philadelphia. He is a pastor at Ascension Church. He's also a theologian and a host, the host of the Mockingbird podcast. He's joining us today instead of Dave Fitch. How's it going, Scott? It is great. The Mockingcast is going strong because it's coming out today with you yet again on it, sitting in two weeks in a row as a guest co-host. This yes, time. yes. It was quite fun to jump on with you guys doing your little roundtable thing. Yeah, you did great. It was really fun. Wow, thank you so much. So, listeners to Theology on Mission, check it out. We talked uh, we talked minimalism, democratic politics, and Howard Stern. It was, yeah, it was quite, it was a totally different uh, kind of flavor, totally different kind of mix than Theology on Mission. And yet, we're, you guys are still bringing in, you know, the grace, the gospel. What does this mean for everyday life? Bringing so the grace bringing the gospel. That's right. That's right. So before we jump into our topic today, which is we're just going to jump right into the what is theology, which we've never really uh, discussed here on the podcast. I just want to make the the summer ask of like, well, we've had a big break. Dave and I are going to come back strong mid-August, no later than September. But in the meantime, we'd really value, you know, your reviews or ratings on iTunes or wherever you listen and uh, subscribe if you haven't subscribed if you just found your way to us through a website or some tweets and some Facebook posts please subscribe so you never miss an episode if you're not listening to this podcast I don't know what the heck you're doing with your life (laughs) well they're listening to it now so we gotta give them a little credit for that that's true all right. so as we jump in what is theology we are the theology on mission podcast we've never clearly defined what theology is which is quite a monumental task so we're going to break it down to that's theology theo logos words about god or as i saying words of god or words to god so there's three as i think about it and we talk about it at northern in my classes there's these three ways of looking at it so there's the word of god there's words to god which are prayer or worship liturgy and things like that and there's words about god which is maybe what we often typically think as theology is you know as humans trying to grapple what uh this whole god thing is so those are the three kind of basic frameworks but i want to kind of lob kind of something in there to get uh you scott kind of thinking so in michael paul's great short little book called uh resurrection and introduction to christian theology uh which we use in one of our classes the very first sentence and i want you to get your opinion on this the very first sentence scott is and to all of our listeners is in the beginning God raised Jesus from the dead. That is the beginning of Christian theology. Thoughts? Yeah, I think there's something to that in that in that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't have any of the other probably theological concepts. It's like like for instance, this is going we're going to get we're geeking out, going high power, high octane geek here. Like I think if you're an atheist, right? You can study Jeremiah or the book of Genesis or the gospel of Mark, right? Like as, as ancient near Eastern or first century Mediterranean documents, right? But if you're studying Holy scripture, you're already doing theology because the only way 
that the Gospel of Mark and Jeremiah and Genesis all relate together in a sacred text is if there's a theology <laughs> that connects them together. Which and why why does that theology connect them? Because in the event of raising Jesus from the dead and beginning the world again at the beginning and a new beginning, all of a sudden all these other things have meaning, like the Bible. Mm-hmm. So. Without resurrection, there's no bibliology, baby. That's right. Well, and so someone like uh, Henri de Lubac would say that Jesus could only give the road to Emmaus kind of sermon, which is unfortunately not recorded for us, right? Where Jesus opens up all scripture and shows how in the Moses and the prophets that all things, you know, pertain to him and that he fulfills all these things. He can only do that after the resurrection. He couldn't do that before the resurrection. So only after the resurrection does the unity of the two testaments and does the sense that Jesus is more than just a mere human become understandable. And then he becomes this bridge and this way of mining, uh, all of the scriptures. So he, his body binds the scriptures together. Yeah. And I so think, that kind of relates. That, oh, think, go, go. Like, like one of the big like mistakes I often hear is I think people, and this is mostly in the evangelical world, but a lot of times I think evangelicals talk as if they believe in Jesus because of the Bible. And really I think it's more the case that we believe the Bible because of Jesus. Ding, 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 ding. You won the theology prize for the day. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Here's your case of turtle wax and some rice aronis. That's right. That's right. Uh, You'll get an official shout out in one of my tweets on my Twitter stream at at some point. And then like it on to it. I'll just give a bonus. It's the same thing with atonement theology. I feel like sometimes when, especially substitutionary atonement goes wrong, it's because people are saying, well, because Jesus died, God can love us. Instead of because God loves us, Jesus died. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it, it's, and so those things aren't unrelated, certainly, and we can't cast off one of them. But yeah, there is a priority there. So going back to your your other your previous statement, which I totally agree with one hundred percent, is that the early church and even you know the medieval church they believed in scripture because they believed in Jesus. But now, mod, mod, the modern church or certainly evangelicalism, a lot of groups I kind of run with, it's Christendom. Christendom, yeah. Oh, first Christendom reference without Dave Pitch. Well done. So, you know, we're only, you know, six minutes in. But, you know, especially in the modern church, they feel that uh, you can't know Jesus without the Bible and that you can't believe in Jesus without first believing in the Bible. So this is why uh, the defense of the Bible is so important. And this is why uh, kind of any kind of criticism of Scripture becomes devastating for our understanding of who Jesus is. And I've heard this before. I don't know if you've run across this or, you know, our listeners. If you pull one thread of truth out, from the Bible, that one thing wasn't literally true. I've heard people say, well, we can't know anything about Jesus then. We it's can't a, it's believe a, anything about Jesus. And I was like, that's ridiculous because we have the church, we have the sacraments, we have the Holy Spirit. There's all sorts of things we can believe in Jesus. We've got we've got a freaking Noah's Ark uh, theme park in Kentucky. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, that thing is amazing. No, I think that a lot of people, it's like theological Jenga. I mean, you played Jenga before, right? Like where you take all of the little blocks and you lay them you lay them down, and then once you play them out, that everybody has to pull one out, right? And the, and the and the person who pulls it out, and it topples, loses. And I feel like a lot of more and generally, it's more conservative Christians generally, but not exclusively, probably. But have like a a, a, a framework epistemically and theologically, like a Jenga game. So like whether you pull out the resurrection or the historicity of Jonah or Job or six day creation, any one of the blocks could topple the whole thing instead right. of having something more like a wedding cake 
or you have the big layer at the bottom that's the foundation, like maybe the resurrection, and then the Trinity is a layer on top of that, and, you know, and so that you have it. So like you can mess around with the more with the less consequential layers and not have the whole thing topple. Yes, yes. So we've kind of hit the first level there. But what is... what happens to you think if you're making a theological wedding cake and a gay couple wants you to make one? That's the uh, question. I don't if know. They, if they want you to make it or if they're the ones making it. But that, that is a dicey question. But I do like the wedding cake metaphor because, you know, the marriage feast of the land is very eschatological. So well done there. So I, you know, I, you know, work with Scott McKnight. And he, if he were ever to, to write a systematic theology, he'd want to make it all eschatology. So theology springs from eschatology. So, which I think is... You got to begin, you got to begin with the end in mind. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so we've been talking about uh, the word of God, um, which some equate with scripture and some, I think, more properly should equate with Jesus himself, the son of God, the, the word of God, who was with God in the beginning. So I think that is where we Incidentally, when people talk about Christian Muslim dialogue, they want to compare the Bible and the Quran. I actually think the proper comparison is Christ in the Quran. Like the Quran is the eternal word of God, and mm-hmm. it's in Arabic eternally. Like, right. And Christ is the eternal word of God. So it's not like so. That's where the, I think the comparison probably should start. Not the Bible and the Quran, but Christ in the Quran. No, oh, that's a very good insight. So then let's move up one layer. So if theology kind of has to deal with the word of God, and I think this is true, early church, uh, you know, the ancient church, uh, the medieval is they all sometimes they get uh, criticized for being so metaphysical and so speculative. And so, you know, into their creeds and orthodoxy and Greek metaphysics and blah, blah, blah. But I think they were all just trying to be students of the word and they self-consciously understood themselves that way. So, uh, but let's move to the second level, which is um, maybe words to God, words to God in prayers in liturgy, it's kind of like the lived spiritual theology and practice. What in your in your mind, Scott? What place do those kind of lived practices have in the maybe the discipline of theology or the discourse that we call usually call theology? Yeah, it's very interesting that I think that uh, in Hans von Balthasar's wonderful book, Love Alone Is Credible, he says that this is the church's project for getting, from from the beginning, trying to make the Lagos, the Word of God, Jesus. Uh, correspond somehow how do, or how does it link up with the lagoi in the world the word spoken in the world and he thinks that like early in the church it, it, the attempt to like bridge the gap was done through hellenistic re- religion and certain kinds of metaphysics he thinks in the modern period it it was much more existential and psychological and basically the title love alone is credible is basically he thinks that uh, that basically revelation is its only, it, it brings with it its own translation. I mean, it makes it, 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 it's the sense that brings its own sensibility. But he says that there is on the creaturely level only one analogy, uh, but it's a weak analogy. And and then even once you know the revelation of God in Christ, it's it sort of, you realize that the analogy of human love and beauty is so much more dissimilar than similar, but it's the only place he thinks you can start is he thinks that like you can't control what you fall in love with or who you fall in love with, nor can you control what you find beautiful. You know, there's this thing, it's, you know, there's that great scene in pretty woman, which is one of my favorite films. Somebody asked me, I just interviewed for a demon class thing. And this guy just surprised me what two movies would you have? Would you, um, you know, have with you on a desert island. And I, I actually said pretty woman because I think it's, it's, it is the gospel. It's, it's the guy looks at a whore and treats her like a princess and she becomes one. 
And the whore looks at this emotionally unavailable guy who can't love and treats him like a prince, and he becomes one. It's imputation through and through. But, you know, uh, he takes her to the opera and says, you know, if you love it, and this is my experience the first time I went to the opera, I loved it. And, and my wife and I like to go to the opera, so it's a very, very fun thing. And I didn't grow up. I mean, I grew up pretty blue-collar. I mean, that wasn't the sort of thing we did in our house. But, but, but Richard Gere says, if you love it, 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 you either love it or you don't. You might come to appreciate it, but you'll never really love it if you don't love it at first sight. You know? And she like is crying, and this woman goes, oh, did you like it, dear? And she goes, yeah, I almost peed my pants. She's like, what did she say? And Richard Gere goes, <laughs> she says she liked it more than Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> But but that's the truth. Like so, basically, and what you find beautiful, you come to love, and what you love, you find more beautiful. Like the 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 woman or man you love, oftentimes looks different as you fall in love with them than they looked at the the first time. So I think that that's that basically that is the the sense and sensibility of, of the gospel. This Christ event comes in. And reshapes everything else you know in light of it. Like, you know, if you, like when you see like the best concert of your life or the best film of your life, it feels like everything is reoriented after you've done that. The Matrix. Yeah. And so I think that that is, yeah, exactly. So I think that on some level, I don't know if that's what we're getting at, but I think that. No, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. So I think you're really touching on the kind of the love or the desire or, you know, the arrows, whatever you want to throw in there. The heart, you know, in my traditions where it's like, well, we need the mind and the heart, the head and the heart to work together. But, but it sounds like, you know, you're really saying, and I, I very much agree with that theology should be motivated primarily from a love and a desire and an orientation towards something that you see as beautiful and that you want to be near and around. And I think that that's really important. That kind of gets at, uh, you know, William Desmond, he has kind of re, been revitalizing uh, uh, philosophy around the sense of awe and wonder as he feels like the philosophical motivation uh, generally comes from a sense of awe of being around something that you can't quite understand, but, you, you're, but you're near, but that transcends you. And I think the same is true in theology is, is that it's not just something we... Uh, come to understand or comprehend first. Maybe that comes later. That's, you know, faith seeking understanding. The understanding comes later, but the faith is first. And the, and it's not just faith as we often, and I think in the West think of it as a sento cognitive proposition that can't be proven, you know, empirically, but it's rather faith in the sense of being drawn near to a person. It, it has to be fully self-involving. It, it, it involves yes. the head. It, it's no less than that, but it's so much more than, and I think that that's something you said is so key. I think one of the ways that like there's like sometimes there's like two roads, you know, two roads in a wood, and I took the road less traveled by. Although it's funny because that poem doesn't mean anything that people think it means. Somebody just wrote a whole book about how we consistently misinterpret that. But, but I think that like two roads diverge here. Theology with Augustine and Anselm. I mean, there's one and Karl Barth. There's one route that says, I I, I believe in order to understand. And then there's another route that says. I understand so that I can believe where philosophy becomes kind of the handmaiden and the building block for theology. I think the latter is the wrong way to do it because what you win them with is what you win them to, which is why actually I think I would argue 19th century Princeton for all of its interesting and uh, in, in some redeeming qualities, the way that they develop, develop bibliology was a form of Protestant liberalism. That mm. Basically it sort of was saying, Hey, on the basis of human autonomy, autonomous reason, I'll prove to you the Bible is, is not just perfectly reliable, but reliably perfect. 
But what you win them with is what you win them to. So like, okay, well now I've got you in the door on autonomous human reason. Here's the virgin birth. Here's the Trinity. Here's the, the good news that the, really it's the peaceable and the poor that are blessed. Oh, sure. Like, you know, human reason is not going to just stop. Autonomous fallen reason is not going to stop once you get through bibliology. And then, you know, you're one generation away from demythologizing the whole thing in a bad way and losing the faith. But So, yes, you're absolutely right. So now that leads us to the third category that I wanted to, for us to kind of bring up, which is words about God. Now, you're saying that uh, a lot of like uh, 17th, 18th century Protestant reactions, you know, to all sorts of things, the Enlightenment primarily, it, it started with words about God, that these could be rationally proven, that the words of God could be reliable and empirical, and uh, the scripture could be proved. Uh, and so we kind of in, inverted the process of moving from the word of God and an experience to some sort of, you know, awe and wonder in the presence of the, re- the resurrected Jesus to the third level, which is words about God. We've kind of inverted that, that we have to prove God kind of via natural theology or some, or some sort of real strong, you know, doctrine of scripture. And then hopefully uh, we can then elicit some sort of response to the wonder of God through that. And it's been proven over at least a hundred years that that just, that doesn't build faith. It just erodes faith. And now we have a lot of really dry uh, theologies and systematic theology has taken a hit, and nobody believes in systematic theology anymore. I do. It's just dry propositions, and now we just believe in narratives and stories, and we just want to cuddle up with our, you know, metaphors. I love cuddling. <laughs> no. So Scott, Scott and I are actually defenders of the, the project called Systematic Theology when it's properly chastened. And so we're kind of doing this uh, deconstruction of it and then reconstructing it a little bit. So that's the third one is like dry propositions uh, about God as being kind of the last um, and but necessary step in theology. But a lot of times when we're complaining, that becomes the first one, and I think that's a major problem. Yeah, I, I think Colin Gunton wrote a great book called Theology Through the Theologians, and it's about, it's funny, it's so uh, British. I mean, he's, it's actually, he's all the theologians he writes about, I think, in the, in the book are British. And because he thought the British theological tradition kind of went the wrong way, and he's trying to sort of correct it. But one of the things he says, that you, it systematic, systematic theology just involves the right way to do it is making sure what you say about baptism is in correspondence and coheres with what you said about the resurrection or about the Eucharist or about eschatology. Like he, and he holds up like Anselm and Irenaeus and Karl Barth. I mean, if you read Karl Barth, there's not a system in the sense of like in the 19th century, some uh, system, systematicians did start like a lot of Lutherans started with a system like justification by faith. You know, that's the orienting principle and everything gets fed through that. He says that's not the way to do it. You can't have a systemic principle at the beginning that dictates everything. But systematic in the right way is like sort of what Bart does, where what he says about God and Christ as he's talking about the doctrine of creation coheres with and relates to what he says about God and Christ and, and that revelation when he's talking about reconciliation. And, and they, so there's a symphonic nature to it, uh, like a harmony to the whole thing, but not a kind of thing where... You always you have this sort of rationalistic principle at the beginning through which you it, like as a sieve that you filter everything through. Oh yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right, and that that properly positions theology that gives it its maybe even its mission is theology's mission is to continue the mission of God, right? So, so theology is subservient to mission. It's not that mission flows out of our doctrines of theology. So someone like Richard Rohr, uh, he says you very rarely think your way into a new way of life but you quite often live your way into a new way of thinking. And so the practice of daily living 
kind of gives rise to a way of understanding your life. You don't, you, it, it does happen, but you don't generally just think about your life and then things change. I think the same is true with theology, as you were saying, is the church, when it was understanding orthodoxy and trying to combat heresy, it, it often went to, well, if this heresy is true, we have been baptizing people improperly for all these times. If, if this heresy is true, then Christ is not present in the Eucharist. If this heresy is true, then we have been worshiping a false god, right? And so they're always referring to, or quite often referring to their practices as having been invalidated by these different heresies. And orthodoxy is just there to guard the practices yeah, rather yeah. than the practices being some sort of embodiment of orthodoxy. Yeah, Karl Barth says that there's two kinds of theologies, irregular dogmatics and regular dogmatics. Like Athanasius on the Incarnation or Anselm is irregular dogmatics. Or Luther was doing something like irregular dogmatics. There's a context and then you have to rethink it. Calvin's doing something. So is that theology that needs more fiber? Exactly. Irregular. 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 You got to eat your fiber. I eat gummy fibers every day. (laughs) Keep myself. It's more coffee. The caffeine helps too. but then Bart says there's a place also for regular dogmatics. It's more like what Calvin's doing. Like, okay, I'm going to try to think through the whole ordering of the thing uh, and try to point out where it coheres. But he thinks that really the priority is always irregular dogmatics. That the basic regular dogmatics always follows and it works in light of irregular dogmatics, kind of like reordering things in light of it. It's never regular dogmatics is never the driver of the thing. It's always irregular. It's always the occasional foray into thinking after that's exactly what you're saying. The fruit of living into a new way of thinking that, that provides the, the, the groundwork for what we think of as, you know, a, a, a finished systematic project. I think that's a great distinction. I think our, what we call scripture, especially the new Testament comes up, is a, a collection of irregular dogmatics. Absolutely. People are always wondering like, well, we're, how come Paul couldn't, you know, is, is Romans his uh, systematic theology and Paul? It's like, no, they're all irregular. Or maybe what I would say is they're all contextual theologies. They're all contextual embedded reflections on, you know, Christ being risen from the dead and the Holy Spirit being poured out on. Or, you know, or you could even say they're kind of missional documents. They're embedded missional documents to local cities and people and situations that are bringing. I want to be the embedded correspondent for theology on mission. <laughs> <laughs> embedded in Corinth. Well, we'll see what we'll do. So to kind of wrap this up, so a theology is the study uh, of God's Word. Uh, it's a study of words to God in prayer, petition, uh, worship, and praise, and it's also studies uh, words um, about God. And we kind of need to keep those in the proper order. Otherwise, things get uh, kind of disoriented and we kind of spin off into natural theology or some sort of real strong doctrine of, of revelation, all of which is important, but it needs to be in the, the proper place. So I really love that idea of in the beginning theology springs from the resurrection rather than some other place. And so, and I think that gives us a, the, the proper mission for theology is, is bringing life, uh, new creation, joy, even if we could think of systematic theology as bringing a joy as being a joyful practice, which I think we should. Uh, so that is the animate, that should be the animating mission of theology as we practice it and as we read it. And, uh, and I think the theology is, you know, obviously for this podcast, it should be valuable for the mission of God, but it always, it always should be situated within that mission and not some sort of driver or dictator of that mission. Dictator. Hey, <laughs> can I just say, let's do a follow-up episode and talk next about Hans Fry's types of Christian theology. 
types of Christmas. Yeah. All right. Well, we could, we could, we could check that out. Uh, I'd love to kind of uh, keep having Scott on here as our embedded Philadelphian uh, theological correspondent while uh, Dave and I kind of retool our podcast. With well, Scott, thank you so much for being. Hey, this was with fun, us. man. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Hopefully, uh, our listeners will uh, think the same. And again, I'm just going to put another shameless uh, plug out there. Please uh, give us some reviews, subscribe, or at least rate us with a couple stars, five stars, you know, if you could. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for being on, Scott. Uh, thank you for listening to Theology on Mission, and we will talk to you soon. Peace and love. Peace and love. Over and out.